0: Prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Well, welcome back to a Sunday. Sarah and Kyle's getting some rest after a hard week. Thanks to everybody who continues to donate to the Give, Send, Go with your prayers and donations. Like this one here from Anonymous who wrote, From an 1811-158 who repeatedly refused orders to apply for an SES and sell my soul. Keep up the righteous fight, brother. I was constantly accused of not being a team player by my SAC who ended up serving over six years with the Bureau of Prisons. His unethical behavior was known and ignored for years. Do not give up doing the right thing. Thanks for your kind words there. Also, please remember to give the Kyle Seraphin show a five-star review like this one written by M. Bengiel. You were chosen for such a time as this. Hey, Kyle, let me start by saying I really appreciate the work you do and all the dirt that you have helped to uncover. I know some is firsthand and others you're just the conduit by which the message spreads. But without your courage and without the courage of several others I've been hearing on your show, none of this would be exposed. And just as Esther's cousin told her in the Bible, in Esther 414, you were chosen for such a time as this. So I'm sending prayers your way and towards the other whistleblowers, and I know y'all will expose the corruption. Thank y'all sincerely. Appreciate those kind words. If you'd like to hear a five-star review written by you from The Kyle Seraphin Show, then do so, and maybe we'll send it out here on the podcast also a reminder if folks would like to wait about two months to receive a t-shirt they can go check out the kyle for all our merch it's all in there i just recently got mine after two months if you're patient and uh, you'd like to help support the show feel free to place your order there finally kyle appeared with friend of the show steve friend author of the new book true blue they have both appeared on the kimberly guilfoyle show which you'll hear in a little bit But if you'd like to order Steve's book, there's a link in the description box below. So go check that out. All right. On to the podcast.
1: Let's bring in Kyle Serafin. He's the FBI whistleblower who helped expose government censorship of our First Amendment rights. What did you think about this hearing today? It's kind of a comedy routine, wasn't it? I mean, you saw that uh, Matt Taibbi and Schellenberg were in
2: there. They're just getting... And uh, at least they were having a little bit of fun with it. They got accused of being in a threesome. And uh, <laughs> we got to find out that members of Congress have no idea who are doing the reporting in this country. So that's also kind of illuminating.
1: Yeah, the reporters were laughing at the members of Congress who didn't even know what was up and what was down. Did you think that the reporters cared more about the subject of the hearing, or did they care more about finding out what their sources were? Um, I think
2: that the Democrat. Goal right now is to attack the messenger because they're not able to go after the allegations in any way, shape, or form that's credible. And it's the same thing they've been doing to FBI whistleblowers for you know for that matter. They just go after. Her, they try to make personal attacks. They uh, you know they, they refer to them as so-called journalists, which is kind of rich coming from the uh, the ranking member there who is kind of a so-called congresswoman. <laughs> she can't even vote in Congress. You know she actually is sort of fits that definition.
1: Yeah, it looks like she was reading off of notes that her staff are prepared for her. DO THE DEMOCRATS FEEL GUILTY ABOUT COLLABORATING WITH THE FBI, THE CIA TO CENSOR THINGS THAT ENDED UP BEING TRUE?
2: It doesn't appear that way. They're double down on it. So, you know, I just kind of take the actions as they come. And, and the actions appear that not only do they not feel guilty about it, they're uh, they're going to go out there and try to make sound bites on it. And uh, maybe they'll make it on MSNBC and maybe they'll get a couple more votes or maybe they'll raise some more dollars in their fundraising campaign saying that the Republicans are really mean and they have all these mean people that want to say true things.
1: And Kyle, is the FBI going to get away with this? I mean, it looks like the FBI was pretty heavy-handed when it came to censorship before the election.
2: Yeah, it's worth noting that the FBI is sort of handling uh, Twitter, and I'm sure they handled some of the other social media kind of the way that you handle a source when you are working in law enforcement. You give them kind of a carrot and a stick, and uh, what we saw there was that the carrot was you could be part of the intelligence community, and we'll bring you in, and we'll tell you secrets, and we'll give you a secret back door. And then the stick was is that uh, Senator Mark Warner said, you know, we're going to punish you with some regulations that will probably be expensive and costly, so you might as well come along. So I don't think the FBI has been disincentivized. They actually got a bigger budget this year they got another 1.5 billion dollars on the bottom line and uh that sounds like that's more encouragement from my end all right any update on your whistleblower situation no i expect to be uh, attacked uh, for the foreseeable future
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay at least you're realistic thanks so much kyle yeah appreciate it jesse
2: so kyle you were an fbi agent and a very good one at that uh, we discussed at length uh, some of the issues with the January 6th investigation in the past. But given that this material was exposed, these new videos uh, last night in the Tucker Carlson show, uh, I, I find this stuff pretty devastating, Kyle. I mean, we can all agree that, you know, January 6th, we'd all like to change a lot of things. Right. No one's saying that was some textbook example of what a protest should look like. Point stipulated. I've addressed it over and over. But, Kyle, based on my objective reading of the situation. It was not an insurrection. And some of the videos that aired last night appear to back up that point. Yeah, 100%. So, I mean, for those of us who have been following this for a while and been watching it, there was always video, like even like the, in the days right afterwards, showing you know doors being opened by Capitol Police, people letting... You know, Capitol Police letting them walk by and not creating a human blockade with their, you know, with the officers and shields and stuff like that. So there were places that people obviously got let in. We always saw people milling about. There was always a, a, an understanding of that. And, uh, and some of that footage is not even unfamiliar to me. So I know that it was kind of groundbreaking to people um, that maybe hadn't been following this and, and kind of just been looking from a distance. But for those of us that have been looking at it from the beginning and have talked to police officers who showed up and responded and things like that, it just wasn't. You know, there, there's two things that happened, and, and you're correct. It was a, it was a riot, and, and things got spicy in some areas, and there's no doubt that people got hurt and, and property got destroyed. And then there were also a bunch of people that were just wandering around and taking brochures and taking selfies in front of things that they were really um, excited to see that they'd never seen before because that's not uh, necessarily an area they would go to in, in D.C. So it doesn't mean they did it right. It just means it wasn't like there's there's no invisible ink on the back of the Constitution that says, you know, if you happen to get your guy who's wearing a Viking helmet into the seat on the floor of the house, then you take over the government. That's not part of the rules. Right. (laughs) Right.
3: And Kyle, I'll begin with you. Um, Why did you decide? Because people always want to know kind of the motivation, the process, because you have to think about a lot of things, how it's going to affect your family, your life. Why did you decide to become a whistleblower?
2: I'm not sure that I had a, a long decision about it. I got the the email that was forwarded on from another supervisor in my office. Mm-hmm. It wasn't you know designated to come down to the frontline agents. And uh, when I read it, I immediately thought there was a problem with it. And I made an appointment with my Congresswoman's office, uh, who was vet Harrell in the second district of New Mexico. And uh, a couple of days later, I showed up in the office, sat down with her law enforcement liaison and community, community outreach uh, coordinator. And I did about three hours of describing some of the problems with the FBI. That was one of them. There were a bunch more, unfortunately, because at that time, We had 10,000 Afghan refugees that were in um, two different military bases in our little area of responsibility. And so I saw a bunch of things that were going wrong there, too, as you can imagine. I brought them just a whole host of issues. That's the one that took off and went to Jim Jordan's office in a big way. But there's a lot of things that go wrong in the FBI at this point.
3: Yeah. And tell us a little bit about the background, you know, your career, your time at the FBI.
2: So I, I joined the FBI when I was 35, which is a little later than most. Um, I'd served in the military. I was in the Air Force when I was in my late 20s. Uh, before that, I had uh, done finance at a movie studio and I'd run restaurants and I'd worked for Dell Computers and did corporate sales. And I did a whole bunch of other kind of like regular guy jobs um, and then kind of ended up in the FBI's space with a, a lot more experience than many of my Quantico classmates. I was 10 years older than, than a uh, handful of them. And, um, you know, you just have a, a different sense of what's right and wrong, I think, if you have more experience in the world, which I did. And uh, as that kind of went on, it led me to work five years with the uh, Washington field office. I I did uh, two years of counterintelligence work, working against the Chinese threat, which is obviously significant. Um, I spent three years on a a specialty surveillance team that did a little bit of everything. So I got to taste a little bit of all the Bureau's kind of flavors. We did some counterterrorism work as kind of a, a very specific specialty. And then I did a bunch of white collar and drugs and gangs and like you name it. Got a little bit of everything out there. And then I just tried to get out of the politics of it and I ended up in New Mexico for a year. And that's when I got into the politics of it for real, which was doing this whistleblower thing. So it's kind of a uh, God has a different plan than what I did, obviously.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, he always does. Um, so talk to us a little bit more about what you saw that shocked your conscience and made you want to speak out that you said, "Wow, this is outrageous and something needs to be done about it.
2: So I brought the, uh, the things to my congresswoman's attention and then the retribution against me was really significant. And this also combined with some of the things that went on with the uh, covid mandates that happened. Um, I'm a pro-life guy. Um, I'm a lifelong Catholic and, you know, come and gone from the church. But at this point, my wife and I are are steadfast. In it. it's just been reassuring our faith. So it's kind of a weird thing to see when you're being targeted for your faith, you're being targeted for doing what you're told is the right thing to do, which is call out when there's a misstep. And the misstep that I specifically called out was not that the FBI was going to be investigating parents. It's what appeared to be lies by the attorney general in front of Congress. Mm. So that was a uh, you know, an allegation of perjury that I brought forward. And uh, the, alleg- you know, the FBI just came at me all the way. They uh, kicked me out of the office. They put me on wall, which I didn't even know was a thing for civil servants. And then uh, when they did let me come back in, they stripped me of all my duties, my responsibilities. They put, literally put me in a corner um, I sat in a corner for six weeks with no cases. And even though they called me an insider threat, which is to say like a a traitor or a potential spy, right. they moved me from a criminal job to a national security squad, assigned me no cases, and then eventually pulled my security clearance, kicked me out, took my paycheck. And, you know, at that point, I ended up going and talk to Dan Bongino about it all because... Yeah. You only really have one court that you can go to as a whistleblower, it turns out, uh, as a federal whistleblower. You've got to go to the court of public opinion, which is why we're, we're talking right now is I just made a decision that this is America's information. It's not mine. And I'm not going to let the FBI steamroll me and my family.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It is America's information. Well stated. Um, it's just disgraceful that you're doing your job. You're honoring your country. And they tried to destroy you, destroy your family, take your livelihood. Uh, ostracize you within their own agency were there any conversations with some of your um, you know co-workers or superiors there that you felt were really you know inappropriate and really showed the bias that they had?
2: yes and no so I, when it was all going on and I was still in the office I got kind of this feedback like you know I don't think this is that big a deal and this shouldn't be a thing and I, you know you're going to come back to work and it's going to be fine and that was my immediate supervisor on the second squad I was on but the uh, the real telling thing is that I had uh, colleagues that were apparently testifying behind my back to the equal opportunity investigators and saying, you know, all these wild things about me that I was either racist, sexist or homophobic. They couldn't pinpoint which one. But I was one of those things, obviously, right. um, which led me to believe that I really wasn't pushing the envelope because I, I obviously could have been transphobic and xenophobic, too, if I was really ambitious. Yeah, you were so I missed out on some opportunities. Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. So, you know, and then the real telling part is after you get kicked out of the office like that, uh, the number of people that have reached out to me from the FBI is very, very small, um, at least in the office that I was in. There's really only one guy in that office that I still am able to speak to because they just don't speak to me. That being said, people that I've known throughout my time, you know, in Washington, D.C. and stuff. We're still in really good contact and they know my character. We spent a lot of time working together, so I hear from them. But uh, it is telling that the people in the office really got chilled and uh, and, you know, probably felt the fear of God of losing their own paycheck and pension. So they kind of just ditched me.
3: Yeah, you know, loyal to the paycheck, right? They're thinking, okay, if I do anything like this or if I associate with him, that something's gonna happen to me, It's, it's awful. Um, it's it's called it the lo- golden handcuff, the golden handcuff. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a, kind of a lonely place to be, I have to say. Right. And then uh, but then you've got other individuals that come out and speak out, which is great. And Steve, I want to follow up on uh, with you on that. Talk about your career and tell the folks like what it means, um, you know, for you when you became an FBI agent and the process that you went through and especially as it relates to the threat tags with the January 6th investigations.
4: Well, thank you very much. Uh, I joined the FBI uh, a couple of years before Kyle did. I was uh, initially sent to the Midwest where I worked uh, for seven years on Indian reservations. And that's sort of relevant to my journey because it gave me a lot of repetitions on case management. I'd opened up about 200 cases in my time there. And then also had the opportunity to go to trial multiple times, which is pretty unusual for the FBI. So when I eventually relocated my family to Florida in 2021 with the understanding that I was going to be working child pornography investigations, uh, and then subsequently was told that those were no longer a priority and I needed to focus on domestic terrorism, a.k.a. January 6th. Uh, I brought that background with me and uh, looked at the the cases and the way that they were being handled and immediately realized that the FBI is departing from its rules with regard to the, the case management. And my initial concern was uh, essentially, if we go to trial, I want to win if it's a righteous case. And so regardless of the politics of it or what you think happened that day, if the, the Department of Justice brings charges, I was taking it on good faith that they were you know, they were righteous. And uh, my fear was that we were not turning over the necessary exculpatory evidence and uh, advising these defendants about these atypical practices and it could come back to bite us at trial. And essentially I would wind up sitting there uh, in front of of a defense attorney and having to answer agent friend, uh, this is your case. Did right. you do anything on it? And I would say no.
3: Yeah, it's, it's an unusual position to find yourself in, but um, you know what I think people also want to know, Steve, is how does this all kind of work inside the Bureau? Is it coming from the top down? You know, what is the chain of command? Because it, I, honestly, it's terrible. Like you're an FBI agent. There's been so much, you know, in the press where people are upset and feel like it's so politicized. I'm quite sure because the existence of both of you, there are good people inside the FBI. How is this happening, this level of dysfunction and the politicization where it's just like these targeted, focused investigations for a political purpose?
4: I think it's a combination of two things. I think that there are the true believers, uh, and and they're bringing these cases because they they indeed do view a lot of the right-wing Americans as the threat. But I think a larger component of that is the integrated program management protocols that the FBI has for itself, where think of it as a local police department has a quota for writing traffic tickets. So essentially, they set these metrics for themselves to achieve, and those are tied to funding for the FBI as a a whole, for each individual field office. And then ultimately, for the senior executive service members who run each field office, their compensation is tied to hitting these metrics. So it creates a perverse incentive to generate cases and and certain statistical accomplishments and quantity over quality and integrity of those cases.
3: Yeah, it's interesting because you said it, it does provide a perverse incentive. Because it sounds like it's sort of a, a system where you benefit if you bring these things forward. And in what way? They get promotions, etc. because people are then willing to abandon sort of their ethics their morality and just go ahead and be part of these uh, politicized investigations?
4: Well, I think once you're at the senior executive service level, the rungs are kind of growing short at the top of that. Uh, There's definitely ambition at that rank. Uh, But it's really more income to me, at least for the middle management types. And when you have this political narrative Mm -hmm. that something like January 6th is the largest and most important investigation that's gone on in the FBI uh, since the Civil War now, I guess, according to the Democrats, uh, and you have an ambition to rise in the ranks of the FBI, you want to sink your teeth and hooks into that case. So you have individuals who are just ambitious, and they are willing to put their head down and do what they're told in order to claim that managerial responsibility and and ultimately promote.
3: That's like mercenaries, you know, and just regardless of, uh, you know, the consequences. But, you know, honestly, um, Stephen, when you think about it, did you like and respect, and I'll ask Kyle the same question, you know, the majority of the men and women that you worked with in the agency, or do you think there's just some serious damage and flaws there that uh, need to be vastly corrected?
4: I was very fortunate in my career to work in two offices that were relatively small, uh, sort of uh, high speed, low drag. So I, I shared uh, a, a lot of sentiments with those individuals where we just wanted to work and, and do the good work that was there. Uh, I think, though, that there is a cultural gap between the management and the rank and file agents in the FBI that uh, has just been exposed in the last few years. And uh, and there's definitely a, a, a lack of connection between those individuals who just kind of see it as their their trip on up the ladder and the into other folks like myself and like Kyle who just really just joined the job joined the FBI to do the job of an FBI agent not to be promoted or to retire with a with a cushy pension uh, it was always about the oath of office that we took from the very beginning it was something that I took seriously and uh, and, and unfortunately it's I've come to realize that so many people are viewing that oath of office as being similar to a, an iPhone user agreement and they just click agree.
3: Unbelievable. That's a yeah, that's a very good analogy. I mean, Kyle, what do you think about what about your personal experience, you know, working in different uh, branches, departments that you did and the men and women that you came across?
2: So there seems to be kind of two types of agents specifically. Now, the Bureau has 37, 38,000 total employees. So the agents only make up about 13 or 14,000 of that. So it's by no means the majority of the, the people that actually work in the FBI. But when you kind of separate out agents, there's two types. There's ones that want to work cases and they're generally almost fighting to stay at the bottom. They're like a diver that won't get you know rid of a weight belt. They're hanging out at the bottom where they can do the work. They get paid uh, commensurate with um, even the middle management when they've been there long enough. So there's no real incentive for them to move into management, at least not financially, unless they think that they're going to put this 10 year kind of um, you know, trial on uh, on their family where they're going to just get bumped around to different possibilities and places. And, you know, they may have to go back and forth to D.C. Uh, Because I was in D.C., I got to see the uh, revolving door that goes between the Washington field office and the headquarters building at J. Edgar Hoover Building. And that is a very different animal altogether. Now, one of my buddies who's a little bit more cynical than I am said that the, a GS-15 in the FBI is someone who's never said no to a bad idea. That's gonna be the assistant special agents in charge and above. And and that makes every single person who's a senior executive fit into that category. I don't think he's actually wrong anymore. Um, the more I kind of see it, these people are willing to go along to get along. They have that golden handcuff. They're looking to put you know another $10,000 a year on their pension or whatever it looks like they're gonna do if they can get a $30,000 bonus for three years in a row, then they will add $10,000 to their actual pension. And apparently that's enough for them to, to care about, you know, making bad decisions or or not throwing the flag when there is a bad decision. And in the meantime, you got guys like Steve who are literally fighting to not become a supervisor, who are resisting the request for them to put in that package, and they stay there working the cases until you know their 20 or 25 years mandatory retirement, and then they're out, they never get a chance to make that management change. So I do think that there's a, a kind of a toxic culture and a reverse incentive for the kind of people that wanna be really good agents.
3: Yeah, that's a shame, you know, because it used to be an agency people really, you know, respected and looked up to, and I always try to be positive, you know, find the problem, but, you know, bring the solution. Um, and Kyle, I'll go to you on this, then get St- um, Steven's impression, but so if the FBI leadership actually really wanted to change this, you know, uh, perverse incentivization that they do, and to right these wrongs, what would it look like? Like, what do they need to do to actually fix it?
2: It's it's probably a really complicated question because they're not the ones necessarily setting the agenda. Unfortunately, I think a lot of this stuff was set in motion uh, on September 11th or September 12th of yeah. 2001. And when the FBI accepted the national security mission and the domestic um, you know, intelligence mission, they really moved into an intelligence agency that has a law enforcement capability and that is secret police level stuff. It didn't, you know, it took years for that that culture to take over, but intelligence communities are very, very different. Intelligence agencies are different than law enforcement agencies and the burden of proof and the standards and the process they're all sort of antithetical to each other. And so as, you know, as a prosecutor, you would know that you've got to go through certain things. There's due process, there is discovery. You have to know that all the information you have has to meet a certain standard if you want to get it, whether it's probable cause and so on. When it comes to intelligence, it's a very different animal. They believe that they're entitled to that information because the mission is good and it's never going to be seen in court. But when you actually have the ability to take that information that shouldn't ever be see the light of day in, in a, a court proceeding and you can reconstruct it under legal processes, it's it's I don't know if you can even salvage something like this. And that's why it's so dangerous, because it's so pervasive. that It's probably 60 or 70 percent of the bureau is now intelligence focused. And so, you know, far less of it is based on the actual law enforcement mission that most Americans have as front of mind awareness.
4: Thanks for listening to the Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and truth at Kyle Serafin.